Why are superheroes so popular? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Travis Smith. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Travis Smith. Travis received his PhD from Harvard University and is Associate Professor of Political Science at Concordia University in Montreal. His research interests include early modern philosophy, religion and science, politics, fiction, and popular culture. His publications include examinations of the ideas of Francis Bacon, Thomas Hobbes, and Alexis de Tocqueville. He has been collecting comic books since he bought Uncanny X-Men number 207 with his allowance in 1986, and his writing has appeared in The Weekly Standard, Convivium Magazine, and Entrepreneur.com. His latest book, Superhero Ethics, introduces us to 10 comic book heroes, 10 ways to save the world, and asks which one we need the most now. It will form the basis of most of our conversation today. Travis, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks for having me on the show today, Alex. Pleasure to have you. So in each episode, we ask a question, just go wherever the answers and discussion takes us. Let's kick it right off, Travis. Why are superheroes so popular? Superheroes are a distinctly modern kind of character, but they retain classical elements. Let me tell you what I mean by that, Alex. Um, Superheroes fight for modern values, such as liberty and equality. So they speak to our liberal democratic sentiments and and uh, commitments. Uh, They often have a technological dimension to their powers or their origins, uh, which makes them different from classical heroes, which tend to have uh, divine intervention or some other magical or mythological component. Not that there aren't superheroes with that, of course, but uh, digression. But uh, they do uh, represent, let's say to speak in classical philosophical language, they represent part of the soul that modern commitments, modern values, modern psychology, modern uh, theories tend to downplay, ignore, neglect, suppress the spirited part of our soul, the part of us that is concerned with uh, sacrifice and duty and honor. Uh, These are considerations that as modern society developed focusing on the basis of a hedonistic psychology, on uh, consumption, comfort, commerce, uh, the abolition of suffering, um, and, and those kinds of considerations on which modern society is based, uh, we, there was a deliberate move to uh, downplay and reject uh, excessive concern for the spirited uh, uh, parts of our soul, the, the parts of our soul that deal with sacrifice, duty, and honor, uh, because they got us into too much conflict and they got us preoccupied with the material goods instead of material goods. Um, but we can't totally uh, separate uh, ourselves from this part of ourselves. We cannot uh, totally abolish or eradicate it. And it still speaks to us as important. Part of us still hears it and is and finds it compelling. And we both admire people who represent it and feel pulled in some ways and sometimes in our lives to, to manifest it in our own behavior uh, and to... to uh, and so superheroes speak to us both in the way in which... Um, uh, we uh, admire people who behave in, in, in this fashion, honorable, sacrificial, duty-bound to do the right thing um, and come to people's rescue. Uh, and also, we all also sometimes uh, wish we could be like that ourselves or aspire to be like that ourselves. And uh, so, so that's, that's the beginning of my answer as to why I think they're so popular. And, and then the, the fact that 
uh, they've proved so popular not only to North American audiences, but all around the world, to people who live under vastly different regimes, illiberal and undemocratic regimes, says to me that they speak to something inherent to the human condition that's that's transpolitical. So, and then already right off the bat, just like in your book at the beginning, you're, you're talking about superheroes on a very human level, about how we can relate to them and what they can teach us about ourselves. And you go into at the beginning of the book how it's a mistake for people to quote unquote deify superheroes. Like I find, and as you probably have as well, since you wrote about that, that a lot of people tend to talk about these superheroes, even if they are human themselves or semi-human with powers and whatnot, we'll get into that later, that people tend to look at them as, as otherworldly in their brains. But really you were saying that, that that really does a disservice to their relatability. And, and right off the bat, before you talk about any specific superheroes and the implication for ethics, you set it up at the beginning of the book that ultimately, this is only a really useful discussion if we see them as relatable and don't deify them. Can you get a little bit into that as well? Sure. I don't want to make a stark either or and say that there's no value in looking them looking at superheroes in a, through a lens that sees them as mythological figures. My, my, my good friend Adam Barkman writes about superheroes in this way, and, and I, don't want to, I don't want to say that it's a wrong-headed approach. For the purposes of my book, I decided to take a sort of more human ethical approach instead and focus on that side of the characters. What, what do they say about the kinds of people we are? How do they, how do they in metaphorical ways, represent the kinds of people, uh, recognizable sorts of people, recognizable, let's say, uh, prominent members of society or celebrities or opinion leaders or you know, technological geniuses? Uh, and, and, and so both, both looking at them in terms of them being exemplars of extraordinary types of human beings, but still human beings and not and, and, and at the same time, also representing familiar human types that we know in our communities, that we engage with uh, you know, in our neighborhoods and our workplaces, uh, that we personally might aspire to be like. Or one of the things I do in the book is I don't just praise all the characters. I don't just, I'm not just a you know, three cheers for all of them, rah, rah, you know, fan of all of them. I took a sort of critical look at them to see how it's the case that Types of people that we often are prone to regarding as admirable or are projected by popular culture uh, as admirable uh, and call into question whether or not we should find them so praiseworthy or why, whether or not we should try to emulate them. Um, but yeah, I try to focus on the sort of human, uh, human side rather than the superhuman or the mythological dimension. Yeah, and, and as well as far as what they can teach us, one phrase you use at the beginning of the book, which I really liked as well, as you said, that we should it's better to look at superheroes and, and these types of stories as metaphors, not messiahs. I guess this is back to the idea that we can learn more lessons from metaphors and things that we can easily relate to rather than the search for some sort of all-powerful messiah or sort of omnibus set of answers to all of our problems. These are these are people that we should ultimately look up to or learn from from the ethical discussions, not not think of as again as, as these saviors or messiahs. Well, right. I mean, I, the the question of how how superheroes speak to our commitment to equality is at the the root of uh, my investigation because I look at the, how the various kinds of superheroes represent, uh, if metaphorically, uh, different kinds of human virtues, excellences. You know, uh, things that, that are worthy of admiration and praise. Uh, uh, things that make somebody's you know. Uh, that someone aspires to or admires in others, and and when when we look when we talk about those kinds of qualities, we're talking about inequalities. We're talking about what makes you know what would make somebody happier or or better uh, than they are. Uh, and and in order to live well, we are always aspiring to be uh, better than we are. 
Um, and, and we depend on people with particular excellences, whether it's intellectual virtues or moral qualities, uh, to, to, uh, to, uh, uh, assume uh, leadership roles in society in order for uh, our collective benefit, even if it's on the basis of some division of labor or something like that with different people, different excellences should uh, hold positions that in which they can use their particular excellences in some way that benefits society with respect to that, as opposed to supposing that, you know, on the basis of someone excellence, they deserve to, you know, be superior in all ways and the oligarchical attitude that Democrats are right, right to reject. Um, and yet superheroes are also very egalitarian. They, they uh, are depicted as seeing all human lives as worth saving, right? A superhero doesn't see a house burning down and, 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 and try to pick and choose which of the people within the house are the ones that are, they deem worthy of saving, but they, they go in to, to save everybody. And there's a sort of ethic of, of, uh, of, of helping the people who are most in need of help uh, in superhero stories as well that we admire. Um, and so inherent to the superhero story is this, this tension between our commitments to equality, but also our need to manifest uh, excellences or virtues in our lives to live well and to see uh, society organized in a way in which those get used well on behalf of everybody somehow. And to balance it off, of course, you said right at the very beginning that you said that you didn't want to make too, too stark of a, a statement about not being able to look at these superheroes, sometimes either otherworldly or or, or non-mythological. But, but on the other hand, uh, you do balance that out on the other side by saying also, on the other hand, treating superheroes as literal role models is not the greatest idea either. We need to, re <laughs> we need to relate to them, but, uh, but, but going too literal is also a bad idea too. Well, no, it, that's right. If you believe you can't accomplish anything unless you've got a power ring, then you're never going to accomplish anything. But if you see that the Green Lantern power ring is a metaphor for qualities that are within us, and we can start examining whether or not they are qualities that we should uh, aspire to uh, possess or make manifest in our behavior. But right, looking at them as messiahs, um, looking at them as as as, as beyond the human, uh, make makes them a mere spectacle, uh, and also uh, dehumanizes uh, us. Um, right. And so you know, you know, I, I'm, I'm a liberal and a Democrat myself, Alex. So I'm somebody who who thinks it's a bad idea for people in the free society to feel like they are in desperate need of being saved by extraordinary human beings with mm -hmm. special powers or special technologies or special knowledge. And it, I'm, I'm averse to the idea that we free and equal human beings uh, are helpless and in, in, in unless, unless, you know, super smart and super capable persons, uh, you know, govern us for our own benefit. Um, and save us from the pains that we suffer and, and the evils that, that, but would rather, I would like to look at human being, uh, sorry, I'd like to look at superheroes as if they're inspiring the way in which they can encourage people in a democratic, uh, liberal society to look within themselves and see what qualities they might possess or come to possess that would help them make their lives and their communities better. So that's, again, on the one hand, like deifying them too much, but on the other hand, you said, if we took it too literally, quote, a night watch of would-be vigilantes bedecked in hockey pads, pummeling muggers is likely to lead to more trouble than it's worth. So we, these can't be literal role models either, as we were saying. Right. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to recommend that anybody takes up the life of Batman or Rorschach. It's funny because I guess as I was reading that, I realized that's kind of like what 
and we won't digress too far here. Maybe this could be a whole other episode another day, but that's ultimately what Watchmen is about to some degree, right? Is this idea of like, what would really happen if, if we had that night watch of would-be vigilantes? I, there are people with superpowers in there, but but nevertheless, I think the point's still relevant. Yeah, I haven't watched the new TV version of it, but I'm told it's good. Um, So, so let, let's, before we actually get farther with the heroes, I just, because I heard you you were a fan of wrestling and I, and I used to be as as well. Not, not, not to say as if like I'm not anymore because I grew up or anything. I just have problems with the current product. But again, maybe you and I could do a whole episode on that another time as well. But but for a quick pop culture note about this heroes and villains thing, I, th- I think that it's it's clear that other mediums of entertainment, like professional wrestling, as an example, um, strike gold and strike lots of relatability when they strike that balance between literal uh, human st- stories and and a, a sort of a metaphorical relatability. Like at the, at the height of wrestling's popularity, if we drop names like The Rock and Stone Cold Steve Austin, uh, most people actually know those names, even if they're not wrestling fans. Um, but other folks, they might not know if we name them here. And at the height of the of the uh, of the era in wrestling in the late '90s and things like that, it's it seemed to me that that's another medium that even if the fans knew it or not, a lot of the success was driven from that. They were actually watching metaphors of attitudes on TV, hence maybe relating to what's called the attitude era. But nevertheless, I I think that professional wrestling is another good example of whether or not people realized it. They were kind of watching ethical stories to some degree. Right. Yeah. This is a dangerous rabbit hole to start going down. With I'll hold Alex. us. I'll hold us at five minutes. I swear. <laughs> okay. Um, no, I mean, all of professional wrestling is a, is a metaphor. Um, I've actually got an idea of turning my superhero book into the first of a trilogy in which I would do something similar with pro wrestling and something different with rock and roll oh, that'd be cool and uh you know the, the the wrestling book would be about how everything in professional wrestling is the most real uh but you have to understand it metaphorically and understand why it's sometimes maybe the most accurate and honest uh, representation of human life uh and that the the allegation that it's fake is based on extreme ignorance uh, but 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 um Today's education system does not teach people to understand metaphor well. We're not taught rhetoric. We're not taught uh, poetics much, and the humanities very well. We, we are, our, our, our mathematics, scientific orientation, and our education makes us very literal-minded and very desirous of understanding things uh, directly and mathematically. Uh, and um, I think this is this does a this is a, a society of, of free people a great disservice. Mm-hmm. Um, failing to teach people how to understand rhetoric and metaphor um, doesn't make those things go away. It makes people especially susceptible to being manipulated by them or ignorant of them, and therefore failing to understand the world around them. And so it's one of the things I try to do with um, my, my book on superheroes, with superhero ethics, was, was show people the value of taking seriously something that looks like juvenile amusements, but nevertheless, it's clearly powerful, right? These are clearly powerful stories that have worldwide appeal and they endure. I mean, it's amazing to me that, you know, think about this. When I was, when I was in high school, you know, only a few kids would read comic books and they did so, you know, furtively, secretly. I was the one kid that actually, you know, courageously brought them to class and read them openly in front of others. Um, <laughs> and nowadays, you know, Comic-Cons are places where people, you know, millions and millions of people go in, you know, costume and, 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 and wear their geekdom on their sleeves, literally. Right, um, right, yeah. And it used to be the case that nobody knew who Tony Stark is. And now everybody knows who Tony Stark is and half the people in the world are in love with him. Um, and so, 
these are stories that are, are very compelling, uh, powerful, and there must be reasons for that. Uh, and the other thing I like to say is um, I sometimes get, you know, why does somebody with a Harvard PhD spend their time writing about superheroes? Um, you know, I'm, and I, I'm trained in and I teach authors like Plato and Aristotle, and they understood how important uh, uh, stories were, especially stories about heroes for understanding a society and for seeing what motivates people, for understanding the psychology of a people. Uh, for uh, convincing them about which values are worth, worth upholding, for understanding right and wrong. It's not morally indifferent what stories we tell stu our students or children about right and wrong. Uh, but who should be admired and what's praiseworthy? I mean, um, we have a society that's, you know, despite the fact that everything in our political psychology, economics, suppresses a lot of the spirit of part of the soul, except for those people who are entrepreneurs, perhaps, um, that uh, you know, these, these, these stories still have a lot of purchase, a lot of, you know, a lot of currency. And so um, we need to pay attention to them and think critically about them and not just regard them as mere popcorn amusements to be you know, disregarded or sneered at, uh, or just you know, merely enjoyed uh, unconsciously. But um, so right, whether it's whether it's uh, pro wrestling or superheroes or Star Wars, I'm of the school that says you can you can you can start the ascent towards philosophy, towards understanding the human condition from pretty much anywhere. But starting with what's popular and the opinions that ordinary people tend to hold regarding what they like and what they feel to be true is is often the very best way to start. So I approach the sort of these kinds of topics that are often poo pooed by a lot of my academic peers in this kind of Socratic spirit. Right. And, and like, it even seems like those who would say that this stuff is just trivial or for kids or, or even people that enjoy, let's say, superheroes or Star Wars or wrestling or whatever it is, uh, even if they themselves say, oh, well, well it's just for fun. Um, yeah, there are some people that really don't care about it. I guess that's literally just idle entertainment. But many of them, when you talk to them, they may say it's just for fun. But it seems that when you scratch right below the surface, you start explaining why you don't like it, let's say, or why their superhero is not your favorite. Some people tend to take this a little bit personally. And that is probably because, again, back to metaphors, not messiahs, if they have an invested interest in something or, or they do like a certain superhero, let's say like a Batman or Wolverine or whatever, there's obviously something going on there. They obviously see something they can relate to and maybe that they stand for and agree with that makes it sort of more of a personal thing. That's right. I mean, as I said in the book, I, I, I criticize a lot of the characters. I made a point of criticizing the ones that I had a personal preference for going in to be make sure I had a most critical attitude toward those and tried to have a most generous reading toward the ones that I didn't like so much going in to try to balance out and make sure I wasn't just sort of, you know, uh, approving of my prefabricated prejudices in the book. Um, and one of the things, I mean, I'm pretty harsh on Tony Stark in the end, I'm pretty harsh on Iron Man. And uh, I've heard from a number of readers that they, that's the thing about the book that most upset them because they love Iron Man. They've come to love Iron Man so much, thanks to uh, Downey Jr. And, and then uh, <laughs> I, I do my best to sort of pick apart why he's somebody we shouldn't admire so much in our society. Right. And we'll get to that in just a little bit. And we're actually about to get there. But but before we jump into some specific heroes and, and what lessons we can pull from them and how you go about discussing them in the book, I just want to put forth one point here. So 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 everybody knows if you haven't read the book and we, we recommend here that everyone does go and buy it and read it. I, I read through it, the whole thing before the podcast and, uh, and, and it is great. So what ultimately happens in the book is that it, it puts heroes head to head as the 
chapters lead up to the conclusion. Um, and then in the and then you move the, the quote winner of a certain chapter, let's say, to a final round in the conclusion where you actually ultimately decide who is the most uh, uh, praiseworthy or the or the ultimate winner. And uh, I, I know it sounds maybe nitpicky to some, but when we're talking political science or philosophy, I never like to, to brush over any language. So let, let's talk about before we jump into the details, what you ultimately mean by praiseworthy. How does someone become like the most praiseworthy, for instance? How is that your sort of criteria for judging these guys? Well, I had to think of a criteria that, you know, spoke to uh, my sort of political theory background. And I also wanted to pick one, as I said, that sort of spoke to the nature of the kind of characters themselves as characters that reminded us of standards or considerations that we tend to neglect in modern times. And so in modern times, we're concerned with, you know, technological standards of power, we're concerned with economic standards of effectiveness or efficiency. Um, and so when you, when you go to the comic book store, the best thing about going to the comic book store, and I can't wait until you know restrictions are lifted and we can go on Wednesday afternoons and hang out and, and uh, argue with each other again in person um, at, at the comic book stores. It's part of what makes the, the, the hobby slash habit uh, uh, addictive. Um, is is you know arguing over who's better, right? Whether it's which superhero or which creator, which author, which artist of superhero stories or any comic book stories, um, and and I didn't want to just say you know who's going to win in a fight, right? You know some people will like their favorite on the basis of who's going to win in a fight, right? Uh, or uh, some other sort of standard of who they think is you know coolest, uh, or who's who's um, whose victories are the most uh, significant in, in universe, right? Uh, and I wanted to sort of have a sort of classical ethical lens to approach the characters through. So I settled upon a sort of loosely speaking praiseworthiness um, as, as a standard. And, and, I, and I don't over-specify it in the introduction of the book. I wanted it to sort of stand out as a strange sort of standard to us to begin with. Um, but what I do is I sort of, throughout the book, I examine each of the characters from a sort of a classical ethical lens, asking the question of which part of the human condition is this character's origin, story arc, power set, et cetera, especially uh, tailored to represent? Which part of our, to use the classical language, which part of our soul do they speak to? Which part of the human condition are they most concerned with? And how do they represent you know, a particular excellence with respect to how human beings need to deal with that part of our existence in order that individually and together we might live as well as we can? Um, and so the standard of praiseworthiness comes in in terms of asking, A, how well do they represent that kind of excellence that any human being might aspire to uh, manifest in their own uh, words and deeds in life? Um, and how much does that contribute to our well-being individually together? Uh, and be relative to other aspects of the human condition, how, how, how particularly significant and um, uh, is that to, to that project of, 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 of trying to figure out how to live well in the world. Um, and, and so uh, the admirability of, of how somebody represents which part of the soul, which part of the human condition um, that contributes to living well from a sort of classical philosophical perspective is how I approach the book rather than, as I said, putting it in sort of modern uh, technological or economic mindset. 
Awesome. No, I think that's a great intro. And I was just about to jump into the first pairing you did in the in that one one chapter there. But um, we're not quite at the time to take a break just yet. It's a little early, but I'm actually going to go ahead and let's take a break now, Travis, because I don't want to break up the pairings when we come back from the break. So um, everyone coming up, we're going to talk about the Hulk, Wolverine, Iron Man, Green Lantern. Batman, Spider-Man, Captain America, Mr. Fantastic, Thor, and Superman, but I didn't want to interrupt it with the break. So everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Travis Smith today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Liam O'Brien, Randy T. Simmons, and Peter Jaworski. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Travis Smith. Uh, Travis, uh, b- before we took our break, I let the audience know that I, I didn't want to jump right into some of the uh, the heroes that you talked about in your book because I, I didn't want to break it up with a break. But now it's, it's time for us to, to dive right in. So as I said before the break, you you, you uh, talked about each hero individually, but you also paired them uh, in specific chapters. The first chapter deals with the Hulk and deals with Wolverine. First, let's talk about each of those heroes individually, and then we can talk a bit about why you paired them. But let's let's start with the Hulk. What, what kind of metaphors and does Hulk bring to the table? What does he tell us as a superhero? Well, everybody knows that the Hulk gets angry and he gets stronger the angrier he gets, and then Hulk smash. Um, what I decided to focus on was sort of his invulnerability, um, how you know not only does he get stronger, but he gets harder and harder to hurt. Uh, and secondly, I talked about how, apart from Hulk smash, the other thing that Hulk always says is Hulk, Hulk just want to be left alone. Right. But human puny humans keep hounding Hulk. Right. Um, but, uh, Hulk must be left alone and he, and he, so he represents, um, our, the tendency that we, anyone can have to want to feel like they could protect themselves against everything in society that causes harm. Right? To not be in danger, to not take risks, to not be hurt by others. Uh, and this idea that maybe if we could somehow withdraw uh, and, and, and go into isolation, <laughs> um, then, then, then the world would not be such a harsh place. And that we could, we could be self-sufficient. Now, you know, Aristotle would say, well, in order to be self-sufficient, you'd either have to be a god or a beast, and Hulk represents how well. If human beings can't be gods, then our only way we could possibly live in isolation and pretend to be self-sufficient would be as a beast. Mm-hmm. And the Hulk, so the Hulk shows us how this very human, very uh, familiar uh, inclination that anyone can have to say, if only I could get away from all of this crap, right? If only you know I, I didn't have obligations to others. I mean, Hulk, Hulk, nevertheless, finds himself compelled to come to the assistance, especially of, of people who are weak or vulnerable. He, he, however, however invulnerable the Hulk is, he's actually very sympathetic toward and identifies himself with people who are actually very vulnerable. Um, and so uh, that's that's what I take the Hulk to represent, and 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 in sort of modern uh, cosmopolitan society. Uh, uh, the the ability for people to retreat into you know, seclusion, into isolation, uh, and 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 try to you know get away from everything out there that hurts them or puts an obligation upon them, 
that makes them vulnerable uh, is something that's a real temptation. You know, I don't want to go too far into current events, but I, I, I suspect that the, the current situation is going to make more and more people aware of how that temptation to be isolated, to go into seclusion, to fancy oneself self-sufficient, if only they could get away with, from everything else out there that's bad or harmful, um, that that's, that's clearly an inhuman way of living. Uh, and so I try to be as sympathetic as I can to the psychological motivations that the Hulk represents that are familiar to, to, to people in today's society, but also in, in, in anticipate why one should resist that temptation and be critical of it. As you said, when the Hulk isn't chucking tanks at, at other vehicles or, or, or smashing things, even even in, in non-Hulk form, Bruce Banner, you were explaining that even in his human form before the accident, he sort of represented these qualities as well, right? I think you noted that the experiment that actually caused caused the accident that, that turned him into the Hulk was actually one that he was doing, I think, if I remember correctly, uh, against regulation or against orders or whatever the case was. And you said that ultimately it was still that idea, even at his strictest human level, that like, you know, people could just leave me alone. I could do my own thing. I can run my experiments like why not and and the hulk's always you know whenever whenever he can he's finding some cave to go and hide yeah right some, de some desert so oh, as on the other hand uh we contrasted that with wolverine in the book wolverine represents um the uh anger that comes with being violated or seeing one's own being violated uh which you might more precisely speak of is indignation um, Wolverine is somebody who throughout his entire hundred year plus life has been violated physically and mentally in innumerable ways. Um, and, uh, and I think there was a great line in the Logan movie, which is one of the best superhero movies out there in which he tells his clone not, uh, not to let other people define him. I can't remember the exact wording of the line. I haven't watched it in a couple of years now. Um, uh, but don't, you know, a version of don't be the person they want you to be or made you to be. Uh, and so Wolverine represents somebody who is a victim um, of all kinds of injustices and wrongdoing. Um, and these have left their marks on him, literally, as well as metaphorically in many ways. And yet he wants to define himself as not being defined by them. He might be motivated by them but he doesn't allow himself to be just simply defined by them um, and certainly not defeated by them, right? Uh, so he, he represents the need to, uh, to, to not let the ways in which one has been wrong define and defeat you. Um, and yet, uh, and, and so he spends most of his uh, heroic stories finding other people that have been uh, victimized and trying to uh, stand up for them uh, defend them, and furthermore, give uh, give himself as an example of how to how to overcome uh, what they've endured, uh, with an always undertone of how people who have been victimized tend to uh, uh, replicate or repeat their own victimization in their own lives as well. So there's you know there's a complex psychological profile of 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 people who've been badly victimized in Wolverine, and how do you deal with that? Um, when, when I compare the Hulk and Wolverine, I like to say, you know, um, the Hulk is the person on the internet who, who gets involved in old fashioned flame wars, arguing that they're the greatest, that they're the smartest and nobody can, nobody can defeat them in arguments. Uh, their, <laughs> yeah. their, their, their opinions are always right. And how dare you? I will destroy you if you dare contradict me. Tons of people Hulk up on Facebook, right? Yeah. Yeah. Whereas Wolverine represents the person who's concerned for, uh, standing up for others. 
the person who gets just as angry and indignant and outraged and and uh, lashes out uh, uh, at other people for um, saying things that are uh, doing things that are harmful to the people that they identify with. Wolverine identifies especially with the mutant community, but he also comes to the rescue of all kinds of other people who are victims. Um, and, and when he sees anybody else being victimized, nothing, nothing gets him more upset, right? Um, and so they both represent those kinds of behaviors that are very familiar to us in the internet age. Just those two different versions of the angry person on the internet. To cap this off, I, I'd love to keep talking about them, but we do have to move it along. There's lots to discuss. So I have a quote. I have a quote from you. So I'll read you to yourself. You, you ultimately say in the book, who is more admirable, the man who struggles to restrain his animalistic nature by fighting for the rest of us in as honorable a way as he can manage, or the man who means to repress his savagery, hoping to avoid anything that might trigger his anger and harm those unlucky enough to be nearby. So that might be a little leading after this conversation, but tell us, Travis, who was ultimately the winner? Who was more praiseworthy between the Hulk and Wolverine? Right. So I think the Hulk, the Wolverine is more praiseworthy than the Hulk. And I also go on to add that Bruce Banner himself is more praiseworthy than the Hulk. But uh, so the real hero in Hulk stories is not the Hulk. The real hero in Hulk stories is Bruce Banner. All right. Let's move on to the next pairing. In the next chapter, you talked about Iron Man and Green Lantern. Let's start with Iron Man. Let's talk a bit about him. So if if, if I might, actually, I'm going to talk about why I paired them first. Green Lantern and Iron Man together speak to uh, our will and our imagination, right? Uh, These are, you know, again, parts of the human condition. Um, and they they say, what if we elevate this part of us and, and have sort of sort of uh, characters that represent uh, our will and our imagination at their greatest levels, most developed, most powerful, um, and they do so in different ways. Iron Man is sort of in the technological direction. Somebody who give him uh, enough means, uh, and his ingenuity will be able to solve any problem. He is able to, through technological know-how, able to solve any problem, overcome any obstacle, defeat any opponent. Um, and it's all a matter of, uh, in the modern technological mindset, all I need are the, all I need are the material and the understanding of how things work and what makes them go. Uh, and there's nothing I can't accomplish, right? And part of the uh, modern technological project is inherent to it, all the way dating back to Francis Bacon in the early 17th century, is in order for human beings to do this, we have to we have to transcend humanity. We have to supersede humanity. We have to become more and different and other than human in order to conquer all of nature. And, and, and we conquer all nature to make it submit to our will so that uh, what happens is what we want to happen. And what we don't want to happen doesn't happen. And so Iron Man, Tony Stark represents that modern technological impulse rendered into the most heroic fashion. And this is something that we as moderns are often who we're looking for what technologies are going to save us from this current predicament, right? This is just part of who we are. Uh, The expectation that technologies are the things that are going to fix things and save things. And the people who are most brilliant when it comes to inventing, discovering, uh, uh, creating technological solutions are the ones that we most need to depend on in order for us to live well. Um, one of the things I think about, you know, being is uh, being middle-aged is I've got a bit of you know pop culture memory. Um, and what's funny is, you know, I remember in 1977 when Star Wars came out, uh, Obi Wan Kenobi 
said to Luke Skywalker of Darth Vader that he is more machine than man now, twisted and evil. Right. Right. You know that line, right? Yep, for sure. In my opinion, Obi-Wan Kenobi did not need to add twisted and evil. In 1977, more machine than man now just told us all we needed to know about Darth Mm -hmm. Vader. That's not good. Right. Um, And in the 90s, the Star Trek nerd, they introduced the Borg. Right. Um, and you just know as soon as they as soon as they showed you the baby Borg already full of implants, you know these are these are the worst creatures in the galaxy, right? Um, and 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 now, however, Iron Man Tony Stark gives us an image of the kind of person who transforms himself through technology into some sort of transhuman, posthuman uh, creature that is more machine than man now, but not twisted and evil, but somehow, wow, why can't I have that technology, Tony? Where is, where's my armor? Where's my injections? Where's my computer interfaces? Why, you know, when can all of us have not just our jet packs, but why, why can't, why can't we all have, we can't wait to all have uh, and, be, and not just have, here's important, become what Tony Stark has become. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's what I investigate when I look at how, t- where does the, the, the prioritization of imagination and willpower in this fashion, where does it lead us? It leads us to that, that, that kind of hope, that kind of aspiration. Um, you know, uh, that, uh, uh, you know, as I said, with the Borg, going to you know inject our and our infants with with implants or something like that to save us all. Um, and Green Lantern, I, I I look at it more. The technological project is in some ways more apolitical. The technological project is something that liberal democracies, you know, communist tyrannies, uh, fascist regimes, all kinds of modern regimes are all equally in some ways committed. I'll be Heideggerian here. All committed to the technological project in the modern era, just in different different ways. Um, and I look and I look at Green Lantern as a sort of representation of political utopianism. Um, Here's somebody who, whatever uh, he can form in his imagination, he's got the power to make a material reality, right? And it doesn't matter that it looks like magic to the rest of us. All he has to do is think it, and, and, and he makes it. And, and it's not only, it's not, it's not an illusion. It's a, it's a physical thing with real power. Uh, and, and so um, he represents the sort of uh, modern sort of temptation that you find not only in kind of romantics, but in hyper-rationalists to believe that whatever we can imagine, we can make real, right? All we need is sufficient power resolve, but there's nothing that we can't imagine that we can't also bring into reality. We just have to double down and be determined enough, right? Um, and and, and, And rejecting the idea that there's any limits to nature or human nature that might prevent us from transforming ourselves or our society into some shape that we wish it were instead. Right. As long as we've got, you know, you hear people say this. Well, the, a, a criticism when people say, "Well, that won't work in reality," people will respond back, "Well, you're just lacking imagination." Right. Or if people say, "You know, human beings aren't like that." Right. And people, people respond, "Well, you're not just you're just not trying hard enough. You're not you you know you, all you need is more more effort, more will, resolve, more imagination, and there's nothing we can't do." Right. And so, whereas Tony Stark represents that in a t- sort of technological sense green lantern represents that i think in a sort of moral or a political sense uh, metaphorically you don't see green lantern engaged in much politics uh, he's, a, he's a good soldier for the guardians in the comic book but i'm saying metaphorically what does he represent what part of us does his character speak to 
Um, and that's where I that's where I that's how I compare those two characters in that chapter, Alex. And we, we have to move away from these two. But before we do so, this was actually an interesting one, the way this ended. So um, you disqualified them both from being I, the most praiseworthy. You said I, I, it was a double DQ in wrestling parlance, right? So so why? These are two characters that I, I'm absolutely huge fans of. I've, you know, I've read every Grand Lantern comic book ever written kind of thing. Um, uh, nerd alert. Uh, but um you know, but I, I, I wanted to really take a hard look at these characters that were so beloved to me and, and, and to our society today. And, and, and it was sort of in good conscience after being as critical as I was to both of them in that chapter, starting off with the, you know, trying to be as generous and friendly to them and in the end coming to the conclusion that these are more dangerous than they are, um, more dangerous to, to us in the end than they are salutary, that uh, I, w- I knew I wasn't going to award any of them the, the victory in the end. And so maybe it was an act, an act of mercy that I disqualified them. We, we're going to have to move on. Let's talk about the next pairing. Let's tackle it the way you, you just did there. So Batman and Spider-Man, let's talk about why you paired them together, what we're compare, comparing and contrasting there. And we could talk about them individually as well after that. Um, I look at them as uh, metaphors for whether or not um, society should be governed from the top down or the bottom up. Uh, and uh, Batman represents... Uh, technocratic expertise and control where the most capable the most intelligent the most aware person um, could impose justice from the top down against all of the attempts by uh, all of the ways in which injustice bubbles up from the surface in society and so it's a bit of a sisyphean at least the best part about batman stories is that it's obviously a sisyphean task you know, there's over a thousand issues of detective comics out there, and untold thousands and thousands of Batman stories across all media. And every day that Batman gets up, Gotham City is just as bad as it ever was, right? Um, so that, to me, that's the best part about Batman stories, because at least it contains that sort of recognition of the impossibility of, the, of Batman's task. But Batman himself is still formed by the determination and the hope to continue uh, 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 proceeding in this fashion, despite its, he, you know, he saves the world one person at a time. But the psychology that he represents is um, the one that's, I mean, the, to me, the the scene in the second of the Nolan Batman movies where he's turned every cell phone in the city into a sonar device where he can spy on everybody everywhere all the time is like the most Batman thing in the movies. Right? In, the, in the comic books, he has a satellite that does the same thing. Um, and in the comic books, he's even confessed to Superman that if he had Superman's powers, of course he would rule the world. Right? The difference between Batman and Superman is Superman has the powers and doesn't rule the world. Ba- Batman, luckily, doesn't have the powers because he would. Um, and and Spider-Man is more the you know um, he's the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. He's he's he represents the idea that that members of communities need to look out for each other and work together. Uh, that they're that they're more modest in their abilities uh that they uh run into miss bad luck you know parker luck bad luck gets in the way uh you, you don't always succeed um but you know living living well individually and together involves uh good neighbors uh trying to build the best community they can around themselves under the circumstances uh and so that, that's why I, I i try to examine those two characters in that chapter alex great and, and you conclude by by saying 
ultimately these are just competing ideas of social responsibility. It's it's about Batman trying to shape the world and Spider-Man trying to affect good every day and having faith, as you said, in that sort of bottom-up mentality. Um, again, maybe a bit of a leading question after we gave all that context, but, but who did you decide was the most praiseworthy to move forward after all that? I, I both made the decision that I preferred Spider-Man because you wouldn't, you would, if you had to pick which one you would rather be, um, one would have to be a real um, masochist to prefer to be Batman. Um, Spider-Man woo-hoos through this, through the streets of uh, Manhattan down Fifth Ave as he swings his web, um, and is and as as exhilarating as Batman swinging through Gotham on his grappling hook must be. You can tell he never uh, in, enjoys uh, it for a moment because he's he's got you know, serious business to attend to because he's Batman. Um, and, and, and furthermore, wh- whose, whose city would you rather live in? Would you rather live in uh, Spider-Man's, you know, uh, Queens, um, even though, you know, there's still crime that, that needs fighting and there's, um, uh, you know, p- people in need of assistance, or would you rather live in the in the Gotham that Batman wishes he could have if only Batman could be who he's intended to be and succeed in his purpose and live in the the police state that Batman would impose on all of us for our own good you know it would have no crime right uh, it would it would people would not uh, be enduring injustice or hardship um, and I and I in the end suggest apart from the fact that Batman's goal is both an impossible goal to the extent that we might try to realize and practice, uh, the more the more it succeeded in coming to being, the less you would want to be there. And and I think like um, one of the films, actually, in my opinion, that captures a lot of what you're saying there is the is the animated feature mask of the phantasm and you actually mentioned that in your book but i remember but as you were discussing there it just came back to my mind that like if you really want to see sort of the arc of of bruce wayne and, and some of the backstory whether he's deciding if he can actually love somebody and and you know he's, he's reconciling everything with that tragedy at the at the end of the movie it's exactly what you said as he's there's like a sort of a closing shot that he's sort of just swinging away to to deal with the next problem the i've never thought of it that way until i read your book but the idea that it, is, is he even doing something he really really wants to be doing? Can't can he stop himself? And and if he could be everywhere at once and imposing that will from top down, is he at that point as as such as a man so bro- so broken that he could do that? What Batman represents is an admirable thing, but he represents the excessive pursuit of an admirable thing at the exclusion of many other genuine human goods. Yes. And, okay, and that's like people who are strictly concerned with justice. The concern of justice is is essential and people who are concerned with justice and fight for justice are doing good things right Mm -hmm. but but there's something about the exclusive and excessive um uh, monomaniacal commitment to the eradication uh, uh of of injustice right that that turns human beings and societies into monsters Right. And that there are other and higher human goods than justice that if that, that will get neglected and 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 squashed if you are only concerned about justice. The people who are the most concerned about justice uh, are exclusively concerned about justice. Um, in particular, again, I'll be sort of classical philosophical about this. Um, this works to the detriment of the virtue of love. Love and justice are in tension with each other. Uh, and love is a higher justice. A higher, higher virtue than justice, um, and can be a casualty of the pursuit of justice. Um, and that doesn't mean that the pursuit of justice is somehow wrong or bad, right? 
but uh, but the the excessive and, and exclusive pursuit of justice brings with it casualties that you shouldn't want to uh, uh, suffer. And one more thing before we round it off, because I, I one of my prep preferred ones is Batman, just in terms of I, I enjoy the character for everything we're talking about here. Like, would you even want Batman as, as a friend, right? You describe in the book how like, this is the kind of guy who, even though he may be cooperating with you or on your side, quote unquote, he's already ha- has plan A to Z on how to take you down if he needs to, right? You describe how he, this is the guy who keeps extra kryptonite in his vault just in case he needs to use it against, against Superman and has a variety of ways to make sure that he can deal with that when he needs to. So it, it's this idea of that excess. Batman's extraordinarily Machiavellian, right? The, the be prepared for everything. There's nothing that you might not need to know how to do. And so you always have to be ready to do and be anything. Um, uh, you know, I mean, and at least Bruce Wayne recognizes this. He puts a devil costume on, right? He's, 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 he, I mean, the, the, the bat ears, don't be fooled by the bat ears. Those are horns. Um, and so the, the subject of who's the real demon has been a topic of some Batman stories because you know, Ra- 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 Ghoul is one of his enemies, right? Um, and so uh, he's, you know, he, he's fully aware of uh, uh, this aspect to his, his character. Alex Aragona is going to have to push Alex Aragona away from discussing Batman, although that's very hard. Um, so, Travis, let's move on to the next pairing. Uh, we In the next chapter, you had Captain America and Mr. Fantastic. Again, let's explain why you chose this compare and contrast, and we can go a bit into uh, each one of them as well. So, um, in the classical tradition, the question of what's, what, is, what, what feature most defines human nature is uh, a major question. And the two alternatives, they are the contemplative life and the active life become upheld as the two rival models of the best life. And are we a rational animal or are we a political animal, right? We're both. Um, And rationality itself has multiple aspects to it, not just practical, but theoretical rationality. And uh, Captain America represents the ideal of the active life uh, to me, whereas Mr. Fantastic represents in a modernized way, because he's about technology in part, good part, um, but maybe that's rhetorically for us readers more than it is for him. Um, uh, he's about the contemplative life. He's about truth-seeking. So um, one of the ways I would des- describe the difference between Mr. Fantastic and, say, Iron Man is Iron Man seeks knowledge in order to gain power, uh, whereas Mr. Fantastic is always acquiring new powers, technological powers, but in order for, for the sake of seeking truth. Um, so they got a reversal in priorities between them. Um, but the question of whether or not Mr. Fantastic is most praiseworthy runs into its, uh, the main point of comparison arrival, not in, in Iron Man, but in Captain America, for whom it's the, the political life, the, the representation of the best ideals of the best possible human community and acquiring the skills both in action and in speech in order to be the best possible role model citizen of that idealized regime. And, uh, and ultimately, who, who was the winner? Who was the most praiseworthy? I found the, the reasoning here very interesting and I liked it. So Praiseworthiness is inherently a social political uh, category. So almost as it were by default, it's going to fall to Captain America. Um, Mr. Fant- the philosophical life, the contemplative life uh, inherently transcends politics. Uh, at its, and, uh, and so um, uh, from the political stand, the, the city, the, the, the political society tends to look at itself as its own highest standard and commitment. 
whereas the philosopher seeks truth which transcends regimes as its highest commitment. And from a strictly political standpoint, that can mean that you know, philosophy is unreliable, if not potentially treacherous, uh, that it can be shameful as well as it, instead of honorable. Um, that it can uh, regard itself as above the laws. We often are, you know, rightly concerned about scientists who believe that the laws don't apply to them, uh, and whether the natural law for people who believe that, or even just civil laws, right? That their that their intelligence makes them above the law, um, and 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 so I end up uh, conceding to Captain America that if praiseworthiness is our standard, uh, then um, it, 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 the award the award falls to, to Cap. Awesome. And we might come back to that later when we talk about the ultimate winner. But for now, we have to move on to the next pairing. So the next pairing was Thor and Superman. Again, for the last time, Travis, would you mind telling us why you chose that compare and contrast and we can get into each of them individually as well? Okay, so I, I, I do open the book with a discussion of how I, I, I didn't want to look at the characters as gods or messiahs or mythological figures. So I, but I saw to give a chapter, if I'm going to do a classical ascent from the, what's most beastly in us to what's most divine in us, uh, starting from the first chapter to the fifth chapter, I had to get the characters that were semi-divine in some way that speak to the ways in which human beings have qualities that they might share in common with or be regarded as similar to qualities that gods or godlike beings might have. And so I took Superman and Thor as uh, representatives of different uh, conceptions of that were the Superman characters let's say more biblical and the Thor character is more pagan. So Travis, without getting into too much more detail on that one, uh, who, who was the ultimate winner? Of course, the listeners can, can definitely read a little more in the book if they want to see the details, but who did you move forward? Well, when I was writing the book a few, uh, 2018, um, at, you know, at the time I was getting concerned with the way in which, especially in North American political discourse in the years, the two, let's say two to three years preceding, uh, the extreme ve uh, vehemence of partisan discourse, uh, the great deal of incivility in our media uh, was really starting to uh, uh, concern me. Uh, and so I went for which character I thought most represented the qualities of civility as uh, who I would regard in 2018 as most praiseworthy. And so I, I went with Thor. I don't want to go into great detail of why Thor, but... Uh, uh, I, I took Thor as rep a representative of civility, and, and the, the answer I would give to who's the best or who's the most important or most praiseworthy might change under different circumstances. I mean, part of classical ethics are that the circumstances matter uh, for for what you, what judgments you make upon due deliberation under the circumstances. We can't pick a we can't pick a winner for all time, is what you're saying, right? No, who would be the right person under different? Who would be the right person to admire most changes according to circumstances and time and place and and uh, the events surrounding us. Um, but here's the way I put it in one of my op-eds on the subject, is I, it increasingly seemed to me and, uh, uh, that people were treating each other as if, you know, as if their ordinary neighbors were supervillains, right? That um, people didn't just reasonably disagree. People didn't just accept a sort of plurality of respectable positions. People weren't treating their, you know, opponents or competitors as if they were, you know, you know, sharing, you know, sharing in something larger, but approaching it differently with different purposes. But we were seeing it, I felt like increasingly, um, whether on social media or in the national media, a sense that people with whom we disagreed were outright enemies 
or villains mm-hmm. that could only be treated in that way, as if as if society as if society were itself at war with itself, and there wasn't a matter of competing views and compete, competing values and competing goods, but we were nevertheless in it together in some larger project, a social project. But um, but but that we but that you know when you've got genuine evil enemy villains, uh, they they need to be treated that way. But I, I got the impression that at that time um, we were. Uh, unfairly treating people uh, excessively in that direction. Um, and so I, I, I looked for and called uh, for uh, uh, recognition of the, the, of the hero that, that most represented what I took to be uh, the virtue of civility in the midst of an increasingly in, uh, increasing incivility in society. So uh, a little bit of a lighter one before we tie it down. Actually, we're, we're, we're running at a, decent, uh, at a decent pace to actually wind down the episode now after we got through that. So let me ask you a lighter one. So who's your favorite superhero, notwithstanding this conversation? Not with- I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you, Alex. That's a really good question. Yeah, see, I guess it's, it's just as unfair as me asking you that after this conversation, because after I read the book for the podcast and also had this conversation with you, I have a lot to think about. But aside from uh, this this discussion, um, I, I've, for some reason, always en- enjoyed the Batman stories. I think there's been an appeal there for me that that he was the, the most, in, in some ways, human out of all of them. Um, I never thought of it in, in the, some of the ways you present it though so, so that's very interesting but as of right now um uh sort of batman specifically the mask of the phantasm feature film are one of my favorite things and then uh, as well there's actually a series that not as many people watch called batman beyond i'm not sure if you were familiar with that one. my son and i are in the middle of watching it on our dvd collection right now you know? oh awesome yeah no I, th- I think that one's great so, so those are the those are pretty much my favorites batman and, and sort of that passing the torch story and that next one are interesting i won't say too much more because i don't want to spoil it for you but those are my yeah. favorites see those cartoons are you know, that's where you really got the idea that gotham must always have a batman yes sort of the, yes and to me, that's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> ah, I don't want to live in that world. Uh, it's, ter- it's terrifying how like a really like, you know, like an, an elderly for those who aren't familiar with it, like an elderly Bruce Wayne is sort of uh, even if he's given it up for a little bit in his what 80s or 90s, he's like shaken awake by by a younger teenager, basically, who 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 at first thinks this, oh, this would be a fun thing fighting crime. And he starts Bruce basically starts pulling him into his ways. He's like, no, this is serious business. If you want to be Batman, this is the way it is. <laughs> and Like it's in that sort of way. You're right. Yeah, I'm enjoying it now more than I did when it was out, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I actually, for a good 15 years or so, dating back to the before the House of M story, I guess the Bujek run on Avengers, um, Carol Danvers, Captain Marvel, became my favorite comic book superhero. I mean, I had always uh, thought she was a good character. You know, Avengers Annual number 10, Avengers 200. There's some great stories involving Carol. Um, but the depiction of her over the course of the last 20 years has developed her into my favorite character. Um, I actually think she's a mixture of Wolverine and Green Lantern. Hmm. Um, in some ways, she's like Wolverine in that she's somebody who has been the, the, the uh, uh, you know, someone who's been victimized in a number of ways, but refuses to be defined by and, uh, and defeated by that in her life. Um, uh, you see this only very briefly in the movie version where she does the whole montage of if you get knocked down, you get back up, right? They right. they very quickly montage that in her movie. 
I don't want to get too much into what how successful or unsuccessful her movie was. I think she's too complicated. She's one of those characters who's too complicated for a two-hour feature film. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the only version you could put in the two-hour feature film was an extremely oversimplified version. She's someone. She's one of those characters that is great on account of decades and decades of storytelling by different creators, putting her through many different ringers, um, and so uh, and, and she's like Green Lantern in that she's you know a silver souled, to use the platonic language, person who's just inclined to to do what's right because it's right. Uh, and I guess, whereas, uh, you know, that version, that character in Green Lantern appealed to me when I was younger, that version of it in Carol Danvers appealed to me as I got older. Um, but, uh, but as with any of these characters, I, you know, I, I take a liking to, and then I sort of reflect critically on them. So right now I'm sort of without a favorite. I have one more question actually for you before we do the formal wrap up where you're, you're going to have the last word anyway, as all our guests do. But I, so, so obviously most of our discussion is based on your books, as we said, superhero ethics. Um, who, who would you recommend the book to mostly? Like if someone's listening here and they're saying, ah, I enjoyed the podcast, but w- would the actual book be for me? Is there more meat there for me? What's the ideal reader? Well, even if it's not for you, the listener, it's probably for somebody that you know. Right. And, uh, and so if you might recommend it to somebody who is either the kind of person who uh, likes uh, pop culture things like superhero movies, but would maybe enjoy uh, you know, a slightly more intellectual treatment of those stories in order to see that why there's a lot more uh, in them than just explosions and you know, space battles. Uh, and, and, and secondly, it's for people who are... Um, you know, uh, more sort of academically inclined, uh, who might have some awareness of or interest in, but might want to see why uh, one should uh, uh, see what happens when you when you when you uh, apply a sort of academic scholarly lens to popular culture, and 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 uh, and, and see whether or not it merits greater more serious consideration than it seems to on the surface. So those two kinds of I try to write a book that would speak to both of those audiences. Nice. And I think and I think it does it well, Travis. I enjoyed it. I actually do have someone in mind I'm probably going to purchase the book for too as a gift. So, so no, I think it's a really great book. And again, I recommend people do pick it up. Uh, Travis, our time is wound down here. We've talked about a lot. Uh, let's bring it full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. In, in each episode, as you may know, we, we I want to make sure the guest has the last words. So let me ask you the final question so you can wrap it up. Ultimately, what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on why superheroes are so popular? If we could sum up our discussion today. So I think that uh, what what I'm suggesting is that, uh, that that there's there's no place you can't start philosophy from, right? And philosophy isn't something only for philosophy professors and students stuck in philosophy classes as an undergraduate. Uh, philosophy is something that is available to everybody that anybody can take a shot at, participate in in some small way. Uh, and you can and you can start with philosophy um, on the ground with the things that you happen to enjoy most. You can take something that to a lot of people looks like uh, a frivolous juvenile amusement like superhero stories or professional wrestling and begin from there. Uh, and that nobody, nobody, including philosophers, should try to make philosophy into something that is the special reserve only of super snooty types that, you know, uh, fancy themselves especially brilliant and nobody else, unless you're like them, can participate in. 
Um, so I, 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 I want my book to uh, sort of resurrect and champion uh, a more democratic conception of what philosophy represents without reducing it to merely democratic um, ideology. I think that's a, that's a great way to leave it off. So Travis Smith, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on the show, Alex. Thanks to you and to the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.